Romans 11. Israel interrupted. We like to keep three groups of people distinct as we read the Bible. The nation of Israel, the Gentiles, and the church. God has a plan for each of them, or we, I guess, should say each of us. God's plan for the nation of Israel was interrupted when her leaders officially rejected Jesus Christ's rule over them and his offer of the kingdom on earth. A new group was born, the church, comprised of ethnic Jews and Gentiles who were being saved in response to the preaching of the gospel. One day the Lord will return for his church. He'll resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture the living believers. He will take his church home uh, to heaven to the homes he's been preparing for us. Once the church is removed, the interruption in the Lord's dealings with his people Israel will be ended. He'll deal with them for seven years in a time we most normally call the Great Tribulation, but which is also called the time of Jacob's trouble, since it is definitely a time in which God is working to bring the nation of Israel back to himself. At the end of those seven years, the Lord will return to the earth. He'll be recognized and received by the remnant of the Jews and finally rule over them and the whole earth from Jerusalem as the capital of the kingdom of God. Now, without the completed New Testament, the future I just outlined wasn't so clear. To the first century observer, it looked as though God had cast away his own people. In fact, it looked that way for some 19 centuries. Uh, and many have been confused uh, at God's dealings with Israel and have thought that he's through with them. Paul took up that issue. God has not cast away his people, meaning Israel. In verse 1 and 2, Paul will present arguments to show God has not cast them away. And his first argument is his own understanding of his continuing heritage as a Jew. And so he starts in verse 1 and he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Even though born again as a Christian, even though he took the gospel to the Gentiles, even though he laid the foundation for the church along with the other apostles, Paul identified himself as a descendant of Abraham, an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He was not just proclaiming his earthly heritage, he was claiming his eternal inheritance. God made unconditional national promises to Abraham's literal descendants. He made certain unique promises to the tribe of Benjamin. Paul understood that those promises were still his to one day inherit. He wasn't simply pointing out that Jews could still be saved. He wasn't saying that Israel, con uh, he was saying, excuse me, that Israel continued and would continue to exist in God's plan. That conclusion is reinforced by what he says next in verses two, three, and four. He says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah prayed against Israel, 
because of her apostasy and sin. They had killed God's prophets and torn down God's altars. Elijah, a Jew, wanted God to cast away the nation. Nevertheless, God did not cast them away. He preserved a remnant of believers within them. There were spiritual descendants of Abraham among his apostatizing physical descendants, and God was preserving them to fulfill all of his unconditional promises. And so Paul is saying, hey, when it looked like there weren't any believing Jews, and when even Elijah was praying against the nation, God said, you don't understand, I always have a remnant of my special people. By the way, there may be a hint of God's future dealings with Israel in Paul, especially in his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. The accounts you read in the book of Acts of Paul's conversion tell very little that resembles a normal conversion or a normal salvation experience. If you got saved this way, I'd like to hear about it. Paul saw Jesus revealed in glory. He was blinded by the light of his glory. He was thrown to the ground. Pastor Warren Wearsby suggests that, and I quote, Paul's conversion is a picture of how the nation of Israel will be saved when Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. The details of Israel's future restoration and salvation given in Zechariah 12.10 through 13.1 will be an experience similar to that of Paul when he was on his way to Damascus. And so Paul's very conversion was an object lesson to himself and to others of the things that he was talking about that God has not cast away his people but has a plan uh, for them and he will preserve a remnant within them to fulfill all his promises. And so Paul understood that God will preserve Israel through the church age and pick up his dealings with them after the church is removed. Verse five, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, Paul could have said right here that there is no such thing as a nation of Israel that we should expect God to preserve. He could have said Israel is now the church or something similar to that. But instead, he said that at this present time, meaning during this entire age, there is a remnant. And so we take from that that in every generation of the church, there will be a remnant of saved Jews. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that even though it's the church age, and even though Jews must be saved exactly the same way Gentiles are saved, and even though there is no requirement to convert to Judaism and or keep the law of Moses, God still recognizes Jews as a distinct ethnic group. They are still his people in a special way. Uh, And really nothing could be clearer. Verse six, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. If it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Now this is nothing new. We've established throughout the book of Romans that righteousness is of faith and not of works. Why say it like this right here in the midst of this argument? Well, I believe one reason is to establish that although God has a remnant of Jews throughout the church age, 
They are not to split off from the church and think that they must keep the law. God is not through with Israel, but for now, a saved Jew is a member of the church, the body of Christ. Uh, and this, a lot of this, you know, I'm a Gentile. Uh, most of you are Gentiles, I would guess. Uh, not too many Jews even in our county, you know, as far as I can tell. Uh, and so a lot of this you think, uh-huh, okay, all right. Uh-huh. This is big news to Jews. You know, Paul is saying, no, Israel's gonna continue. God has not cast away his people. But you have to remember, we're in the church age. There's an interruption in God's dealing with you as a nation because your leaders rejected Christ. Right now, you're a, a Hebrew Christian. You're a completed Jew. You're in the church. You're a member of the body of Christ. And so all of this teaching about the remnant isn't to say that, so convert, stay in Judaism, uh, keep, you know, uh, the law and all that. And so he, he reminds them again, he goes, you know, you're not to, to remain in this ritual religion, even though God is preserving you as an ethnic people. And so that's pretty clear. Verse seven, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. The majority of the nation of Israel was seeking the righteousness of works and they had not obtained it. We saw throughout the book of Romans up to this point that you cannot obtain it through works. The elect within the nation of Israel are those individual Jews who have obtained righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They've been declared righteous by God, had righteousness imputed to them on the basis of their belief in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for them. Now, the majority, having rejected the Lord, we read, were blinded. This is something that bothers us, but it doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it doesn't mean that they could have, uh, that they could not have believed. It means that they would not believe, and therefore God gave them over to their decision. And so God says, well, they were blinded. And, uh, you know, some people might conclude that, well, then there, there was nothing they could do since God blinded them. But that's not really the meaning here. And I can uh, give you an example. Uh, probably the prime example of this would be Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. You remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He knew what was coming because of their rejection of him. And he, he indicated in his little talk there, in his lament, that he would have gathered them under his wings as a mother hen, but he says, you would not. They wouldn't have any part of it. It was their decision, their response, and therefore their responsibility. If the Jews could not believe because God had blinded them, then Jesus' lament would have been insincere at the very least. Why lament over a people who have no trade? He would have said, well, Jerusalem, we decided not to save you. And so judgment is coming. But instead, he had a heartfelt and sincere lament because the Jews, they refused to believe. Verse eight, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. That's a word we need to bring back, isn't it? Stupor, I like that word. I'm in a stupor every night at about nine o'clock on the couch. I think I'm awake, but I'm really not. I used, to, I used to make so much fun of my father, my poor dad. He worked so hard. My dad was a hard worker uh, his whole life, uh, really hard, I, you know, uh, mechanic and, and all. And, and um, 
you know, get up in the morning, have a shot of whiskey to get his heart started, he told me. Uh, hey, it worked for him. I, I, I don't do that. But uh, I have mine in the evening. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, <laughs> I don't drink, you know that. But, uh, you know, every night he'd come home and he was so, you know, it's, he's just dog tired. And he'd sit on one, we'd have big, these, remember these giant lounge chairs, you, you know, the Barca loungers, you know, and stuff. And he'd be floating in this thing. And pretty soon his, like this thing. And my mom, hey, Gene, go to bed. I'm awake. <laughs> and I used to watch this drama play out. It was like I Love Lucy in my living room, you know. And my dad, you know. And then he'd say, because he was, when he finally admitted he was sleeping, he'd say it was because he was under one of the vents. And, the, you know, it was, I don't know what that had to do with contributing to him sleeping. But, and so now that's what I do, you know. In, in respect to my father, uh, I just, you know, I sit down and I think, yeah, I, I can go another hour. <laughs> and I'm gone, you know. And Pam says, hey, go to bed. I go, no, I'm fine. I'm away, you know. And I think, actually, I, I'm starting to think I might have narcolepsy because, man, one minute I'm awake and the next minute I'm just gone. But anyway, uh, stupor, one of my favorite words because I, I live it out. So where are we? In verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow their, uh, excuse me, bow down their back always. Now these verses describe God's discipline upon the nation of Israel for their decision to reject the Lord. Verse eight tells you not to expect national repentance in our day and age. Verse nine is interesting. Table is a reference to the temple worship and sacrifices. Their temple worship and sacrifices both became and will become the things described. Their temple worship and sacrifices did become a snare and a trap in the sense that they preferred the outward form of worship to the personal worship of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he offered uh, you know, himself for them as their mediator and, and, and all. Uh, you remember when Jesus died on the cross, God reached down from heaven and he tore the veil in the temple from top to bottom, indicating that his presence was made available through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Jews, uh, I don't know if they you know, dispatched a sewing troop to, you know, but they got that thing put back together uh, because they preferred that kind of worship. They didn't want to go to God directly and have a personal relationship with him. They kind of liked the tabernacle with its secret meeting and all of its little devices and all, and, and they rejected uh, that whole form of worship that the Lord was offering. And then their temple worship and sacrifice will become a stumbling block and a recompense to them in the future great tribulation. Uh, we know that there will be a tribulation temple. Jesus spoke of it. Daniel spoke of it. Revelation speaks of it. Uh, in their zeal to rebuild that temple in Jerusalem, the nation of Israel in the future is going to enter into a peace treaty with a world leader from Europe. Uh, he will be none other than the Antichrist. He will enter their temple He'll defile it by declaring that he is God and then brutally persecute the Jews. Uh, and so this is sort of the history, you know, this is where Paul is coming from. He's saying God has not cast away his people. Uh, there's an interruption in the story, but it's going to be picked up. Now, we encountered a couple of terms that believers spar over. I want to talk about them briefly because these sec this section of Scripture here, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is a kind of a theological battleground. Uh, the terms here were foreknew and elect. 
And so I want to take a quick look at them, starting with election. Now, this word election itself, it's derived from the Greek word uh, that's unpronounceable by me. Uh, let's, let's give it a shot. Eklegomai. It sounds right. You think so? What? Sure. Why not? Uh, which means literally to choose something for oneself. When used of persons, uh, the elect are those who are saved. Now, exactly how is election accomplished? Well, that's the $64,000 question. One popular theological opinion is called unconditional election. It's the belief that God chose some in eternity past to save, and when these who are his elect hear the gospel, they are regenerated, and then they are enabled to exercise faith and repentance. With unconditional election, the believing sinner exercises no free will, he has no real choice. Now, those who teach this will tell you, oh, they do have a choice. You do have a choice, but it's only a choice to do what God has determined you will do. Uh, it's kind of a philosophical construct uh, that they use. It's, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading on this lately. I don't know why, but uh, it's called compatibilist free will. It means that you are free in, in, to do what is combat, compatible with your will. And when God irresistibly draws you to himself, the only thing that's compatible is to say yes to him, and so therefore you're free even though it's the only thing that you can do. So did you follow that? Philosophically, that works, but you and I scratch our heads. So uh, we would look at that and say, well, there's really not a choice involved. This person is irresistibly drawn to God. God has determined his or her salvation from eternity past, and therefore all who were elected in eternity past will be unavoidably saved. Now, you know that expression, the 800-pound gorilla in the room? In fact, there's a commercial like that now. Have you seen it? There is an 800-pound gorilla in the room. I, that would scare me, but doesn't seem to bother the people there. But anyway, uh, do gorillas creep you out? I, you know... Who was that lady that was up with the gorillas, the silverback lady? You know, that's Jane Goodall. Crazy stuff. Insane. Now, then there was somebody else, Sigourney Weaver. But, uh, (laughs) so, uh, unconditional election brings an 800-pound gorilla into the discussion of election. Simply stated, if election is unconditional, then God could have saved everyone but he determined to only save a very few. And those he determined to not save, well, he determined therefore to damn them to hell. It's called by theologians on both sides of the issue, double predestination. If God predestined some to election and salvation, then he also predestined others to reprobation and to damnation. Now, although some who believe in unconditional election try to distance themselves from this awful conclusion, it is the inevitable result of their view of election as being unconditional. And many, if not most, of the scholars who believe election is unconditional will admit predestination must be double in this sense. One of the uh, big guys uh, who believes in this, uh, smart guy, R.C. Sproul, in his book, Chosen by God, he has a whole... Uh, chapter on double predestination, and he says, basically, he he says, if you believe in this uh, unconditional election, you must believe in double predestination. God, uh, you know, saves some, and he damns others. Now, those who argue against unconditional election 
They don't do so because it robs you of your free will. They oppose it on biblical grounds because it robs God of certain of his attributes, they say, such as his love and his justice. There's just no argument you can muster to show that God is loving and just to create people whom he could have saved, but he determined to not save, and even worse, to send to hell. Simply put, if God selects some to be saved unconditionally and irresistibly, why doesn't he choose all? Now, commenting on unconditional election and its inevitable double predestination, one scholar said, God is thereby rendered morally ambiguous at best and a moral monster at worst. Another scholar wrote, I believe this so-called double predestination of individuals by God is inconsistent with his love. And the teaching makes it difficult to tell the difference between God and the devil. Here's another even stronger criticism. Only a moral monster would refuse to save persons when salvation is absolutely unconditional and solely an act of God that does not depend on man's free will. And so that's the argument against it. It isn't that, oh, I have free will, I have to have free will because that's the most important thing. No, those who serious, give serious thought to this issue say, no, what bothers us is that no matter how you slice this thing, God could have saved others that he damns to hell. Uh, and, and they say that that impugns the nature and character of God. So is there an alternative to unconditional election? Well, yes. It involves our understanding of the second controversial word, foreknew, or God's foreknowledge. The great evangelist John Wesley summarized his understanding of God's foreknowledge when he said, God sees from all eternity who will and will not accept his atoning work. God does not coerce the acceptance of his offer. The atonement is available for all, but not received by all. Now, this view of foreknowledge led theologian Henry Thiessen in his classic work, Lectures in Systematic Theology, to conclude, and I quote, election is that sovereign act of God in grace, whereby from all eternity he chose in Christ for himself and for salvation all those, excuse me, all those whom he foreknew would respond positively to prevenient grace. Now, this type of election based on God's knowing beforehand who would receive and who would reject the sincere offer of salvation, sometimes called conditional election. That's because it's conditioned upon the response of the sinner's freed will. How can a dead sinner have a freed will to respond to God? You might have noticed in the last quote by Thiessen the term prevenient grace. What is that? Roger Olson defines it this way. He says, prevenient grace is simply the convicting, calling, enlightening, enabling grace of God that goes before conversion and makes repentance and faith possible. Those who hold to unconditional election interpret it as irresistible and effectual, meaning the person in whom it works must repent and believe. Those who believe election is conditional interpret it as resistible. People are always able to resist the grace of God as the scripture warns in Acts 7.51. And so in this argument of conditional election, prevenient grace frees the human will to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. No one is forced or coerced to believe, but no one is passed over because they cannot believe by God's own choice. Now, conditional election is not without its own issues. 
For example, if you get into it, it's hard to reconcile God's absolute foreknowledge with man's freed will. Uh, it's, it's just a tough philosophical concept. It's led some into heresy. Uh, there are those who start kind of in this area and they come to the conclusion that God must not even know everything that's going to happen. because they start to think so much of man's freed will that if if it's free, then how can God know exactly what's going to happen? And uh, it leads to an open theism, they call it, and and it's it's just crazy, you know, because the Bible doesn't teach that God is wondering what you're gonna do in the next five minutes and that he has to make adjustments for it. You know, it's it's just crazy. So uh, conditional election has some problems too. I wouldn't say it's an 800-pound gorilla in the room, however. It's more like a chimpanzee. That's a little joke there. In the end, I'd rather live with the problem of how God remains sovereign while freeing our will than come to the conclusion that God has predestined most of the human race whom he could have saved but determined to not save to an eternity in hell. And the truth is, those are, you, you, sometimes you have alternatives and, and there's something you have to choose uh, what you're gonna believe. There's people on both sides of this argument who will say there's only one possible biblical solution to this and it's ours. Uh, but the truth is, uh, if that were true, we wouldn't still be talking about this. Uh, and, and so uh, I would rather live with the problem of my freed will than think that most of the human race could have been saved by God, but he chose not to save them uh, to show his glory in some way. And so God is sovereign, and God is also love. So the question becomes, does God in his sovereignty limit his love so that love seems more like indifference or hatred in his predestinating people to hell? Because if you talk to people who believe in unconditional election, they'll say, God is love, because the Bible says that, and somehow, by predestining people to hell, it shows the love of God for those whom he doesn't uh, send to hell and it somehow shows his glory. And you and I think about that and we think, so God's love is not even as gracious as man's love because we don't even do that. If we had a person who did that, we would call them a serial killer. And so it's a very, it's a real conundrum for unconditional election. Or... Does God in his love choose to limit his sovereignty so that he remains in control of the universe, working out all things to his glory, but simultaneously gives whosoever will believe the prevenient grace to exercise what amounts to a freed will and a genuine choice? Uh, And so for now, in my life where I'm at, I choose the chimp over the gorilla. Uh, That's where I'm coming from. Amen? Amen.